0: Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's thrivecosmetics Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order.
1: Before we get into today's show, I want to tell you all about a very special Rebel Radio live podcast we have coming up Saturday, April 21st, 1.30 p.m., uh, my guest on stage will be Ali Shaheed Muhammad, the hip-hop icon, member of A Tribe Called Quest, one of my favorite DJs, and he's the host of the amazing Microphone Check podcast. That's part of the LA Times Festival of Books, the new story program. It's going down at USC on campus April 21st, like I said. You can get tickets at events.latimes.com slash festival of books. Josh Levine, Ali Shahid, Mohammed, watch us do our thing.
2: This is Ethan Baer from EDM.com, and you're listening to Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Tina Butterwolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Ah. Rebel Radio is going down. Would you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel
1: Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I talk to the rebels who are shaping youth culture. We talk about how they do it, why they do it, and what you can do to get a little piece of the pie for yourself. We're also the only show that brings you new music every week from our friends over at EDM.com. And speaking of EDM.com, my guest this week is Ethan Baer. He's the co founder and the CEO of EDM.com. He runs the website and the label. They also uh, own some of the most popular SoundCloud channels on the service. Really fascinating business, innovative to uh, the music industry. He's gonna talk to us about how he built that, what he's learned along the way. And you know, in his job, he works with hundreds of artists, DJs, producers. He shares some advice for what um, what they should pay attention to starting out. Definitely if you, if you work in the industry or you have um, Uh, friends who are artists trying to make it they're definitely going to want to hear this one so share it with them we'll get into it right after our edm.com track of the week track of the week that's double drop with hey puppy if you like that one get over to edm.com check out new music and let's get into the interview with ethan bear the ceo of edm.com dude thanks for doing this interview with me yeah absolutely i'm excited uh this is impromptu it's our it's my first interview without notes or yep we're gonna Um, but, uh, you know, I always love doing interviews with people that I know because we, I find out a bunch of stuff I didn't know.
2: Right. So maybe the, the no research is a, is a good thing. Well,
1: and I think you have a fascinating job, um, to be running edm.com and, and, uh, the label and, and, you, you know, you've conceived of this, I think, really interesting business model. So I'm excited to kind of talk about. How that's happened, and why, and what you're gonna do with it now, and yeah, I'm excited to uh,
2: to talk about it and kind of explore that more.
1: all right, so take us to the beginning. What was the music what What music really turned you on to music? Ooh. Do you remember like an early record or something like that? It was mostly metal, yeah,
2: I really loved death metal, heavy metal, okay, um I think
1: so you're a kid growing up in Denver,
2: yep. Kid growing up in Denver. And what was the what was like? What was the first record you bought? Ooh, the first record I bought. I actually the only record I ever bought was Linkin Park Hybrid Theory. No way. Yep, that's crazy. Yep. Um, okay. Not that I didn't like like music at that time. I just yeah. didn't really. I was on the, on the peer to peer illegal sure. downloading thing real early. So, so okay. Which is interesting. That now I'm doing a label. And, yeah, yeah. But, yeah.
1: So you bought Hybrid Theory.
2: Yep, I bought Hybrid Theory. Uh, I was in maybe sixth grade, and from that point forward, I knew that I loved music. I remember getting my uh, Sony Walkman and listening to it, sitting in a hotel with my parents, and just I went into my room and put on the headphones and didn't come out for a couple hours and listened to the album a couple times through. And from then on, that was you know I was definitely a music lover from that time forward.
1: And did you... I mean, you're a kid then, so you're not thinking of music as a career.
2: No, not at all. I actually never thought of music as a career until it happened. Really?
1: Mm-hmm. So what were you going to do for a living?
2: Um, I was torn. I mean, my my uh, my ideal job changed very frequently. Yeah. Uh, the first time I was ever asked what I wanted to do, my mom was trying to like kind of show me off to her friends or whatever. And she asked me what I wanted to do, and she's like, "Do you want to be a pres, the president, someday?" Uh-huh. And I said, "Why would I want to be the president? I want to be the king of the universe."
1: Oh, nice. <laughs> I think um, Donald Trump wants the same thing. Yep, I think he does. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, how did 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 that happen?
2: No, nah, it didn't work out. Okay. Yeah, I actually decided not to take the job.
1: I didn't remember. Yeah, my my. American history is a little fuzzy.
2: Yeah, I was told that there it was like a conflict of interest, so <laughs> I just didn't pursue it. All
1: right. So king of the universe, that's cool. Yeah,
2: and then uh, I wanted to be a doctor because okay. both of my parents are doctors, so yeah. I thought that was like what I was supposed to do. Sure. Um, and then I wanted to be a lawyer because I felt like it was the opposite. I don't really know if it's the opposite, but I felt like it was.
1: So wait, so go back to the music for cool. a minute. So, yep. so what was your introduction to electronic music um
2: i think i listened to like some electronic here and there in high school but my first like real electronics experience was i saw daft punk at red rocks um in 2007 i think their live 2007 tour and they had their big pyramid that we they were famous for and that was a I mean that was a it's a legendary show in Daft sure. Punk history. Um yeah. and that that definitely imprinted on me. Yeah. And uh, from from that time forward I really I was into electronic music.
1: Okay, so you're a metalhead mm-hmm. and you end up seeing Daft Punk. Yep. Which is not very metal. Nope. And what what happens?
2: Um it was just so different and seeing like the scene was so incredibly different, but very enticing to me. Um, I was at that point, the only shows, the only concerts I had been to were metal shows Mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed them a lot, but it always seemed to me that kind of like the purpose of a lot of people being at those shows was more to like, Get out aggression and be in the mosh pit and kind of shove people around. For sure. And, you know, I loved that. That was real fun at the time and like getting, getting like rough with people and getting out some of that energy. Like I enjoyed that. Yeah. But being at that Daft Punk show was a very different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm they, sure. there were so many like super hardcore fans there and it was really. I felt like it was one of the first times I was at a show where it was just about the music and everyone was so excited to be there about the, for the music and for that show and for Daft Punk. Yeah. Um, which was really cool. It was just much more laid back and more, more of a party than like a brawl. Sure. For (laughs) for obvious reasons. Totally.
1: Totally. It's funny though. I mean, I've, I'm not a metal guy and, but I've been to, you know, I've been in a few mosh pits in my life. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know the I, I mean, got
2: caught in one on New Year's. Oh, really? Yeah, this, this last year. year. This year. Yeah, I went to a show. You're getting a little old to be. I know. Prepared. I I actually have been limping for the last 3 <laughs> weeks. I I thought I broke my foot. It's just a very slight just a sprain, yeah. but uh yeah, I was at Bro Safari and Zed's Dead and a couple other people at a show in New York and uh, I went with a couple girls and some of my friends. And a mosh pit just started in the middle of Bro Safari, and like wow. I was trying to keep it away from the people that I was with, so I sure. was kind of like the blockade between my friends and the mosh pit. Yeah. And some guy just slammed into me, and then as I, as I'm kind of stumbling backwards, another dude stomps <laughs> on my foot. Not not on purpose, <laughs> yeah, but just yeah, yeah, he's yeah. getting yeah. you know bumped around too. Sure. And then for the next like couple weeks, I'm like limping and whatever. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm too old for the mosh that's pit. A, that's a young man's <laughs> game for sure.
1: Yeah. But I was going to say, like, you know, having, you know, it's a totally different experience. And it is a huge release of energy. Mm-hmm. And just that, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it. it's a it's a really unique type of show. Yeah. Um,
2: I also just kind of, uh, I got to a point where I was, like, really concerned about my hearing. Um, and electronic music, I mean, it can be really loud. And the shows are, you know probably almost as damaging, but metal shows were pretty brutal on my yeah. ears. And at that point I wasn't wearing earplugs yeah, and, yeah, you know, of course. so of course. It, getting, I, I, at that point I kind of started to realize I should probably protect my ears if I want to continue enjoying music.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So how does this, uh, how do you start to get involved in, in the business of it?
2: Yeah. So in college, uh, my roommate freshman year was really into electronic music. Um, Daft Punk Ratatat Justice released their first album around then, um yeah, and I just that was what he played all the time, so I got really into it because it was kind of like our bonding experience with your new roommate yeah um and then as I kind of went through college, it was just what was popular uh, every, everyone at my school you know was really into hype machine at the time, okay. and like, it was electronic music was very that's still around, yeah, hype machine's still Is around, but it doesn't have nearly the. It doesn't have nearly the clout that it did back then. I mean, the, yeah, no, no the scene. music scene was just so different. You yeah. know, everything was based around downloads. Yeah. So you would have to Clubs. discover the music somewhere right. and then go and download it. And Hype Machine was like a very central discovery platform. Yeah. And a lot of the music, a lot of the electronic music I listened to at that time wasn't so much artists putting out a lot of original content, but it was a lot of remixes. Right. Hype Machine in particular was a lot of remixes. So I yeah. discovered, you know, early Deadmau5s um justice boys noise crystal castles kind of some of the electro Mm -hmm. type stuff um and Hype, hype machine was like a very central part of me kind of discovering a lot of the artists that would take me into being excited about dance music yeah i was really into the blog scene too back then yeah which all of that has so much less influence now with all the streaming platforms that really kind of curate the taste that people end up Uh it does
1: but but it's weird i mean i feel like it was an important kind of step oh yeah to where we've gotten right because you know before that it was this very like you had this sort of professional class Mm -hmm. of whether they're djs or radio or magazines right you had these people that are like I mean, uh, I mean, I was part of that, and a lot of us were just kids, kind mm-hmm. of doing our thing. But there was this still sort of like division between the industry or the or the editorial side and the listeners, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, very and much. Even so. if you were a journalist that was working for free, somebody was still picking up your article and and deciding to publish it and all of that. And then the blog thing just change all of that because anybody could create a blog right.
2: the fans became the critics in Absolutely. a sense. yeah right. exactly and the curators and whatever yeah.
1: else and now we've gotten this sort of back or this kind of middle ground like with the right. playlists and the and i mean djs are obviously still important right but um so okay we're jumping ahead though but but so so how did you get involved what was what was um yeah, so freshman, how'd you kind of find your way into the music
2: business? Yeah, freshman and sophomore year, um, I was just really immersed in it because my friend group had really kind of bonded over electronic music. Yeah, um, I learned to do poi. I don't know if you know what poi are, um, but no. they're uh, it's like a it's like a tarot. Yeah, so they're like, like a. There's Hawaiian two forms. There's two primary forms of poi. There's like the glow up light ones, um, and they're basically glowing balls attached to a chain. And you
1: do kind of. Oh, like, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah,
2: so you kind of twirl them around. Like and glow, do stick glow kinda... sticks on chains, yeah, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. I um, So I did that for I didn't a know while. That was a name. Yeah, I did that for a while, and that was cool. And then eventually I wanted to one up it. So my friend Josh and I started doing a fire poi. Oh, shit. So that's where you, they're, made, they're these Kevlar mesh uh, balls still attached to the chains, and you pour gasoline on them and light them on fire wow. and then spin them around. Okay. Um, and so I got real good at that. And that okay. was kind of like my rave thing. All right. um, so I was like starting to get more into electronic music. And then junior year, uh, I started DJing. Yeah. Um, and that was when I got real into it. Um,
1: what, what was the first gig?
2: It was pretty much, I, I played a couple like house parties and stuff, but it was almost always college yeah. stuff on my college campus. I didn't yeah. play any like paid gigs or anything. I played so. one show for an artist, uh, one Uh, set at a legit venue Mm -hmm. for an artist that I was loosely managing at a a time. And I did direct support for him, Um, which was cool. It was fun to play for like an audience that wasn't people that I knew. Um, But it was mostly college. Um, And I didn't do it because I wanted to make money as a DJ or I wanted to be an artist. I did it mostly because I became known amongst my friends as the guy who was always looking for new music. Mm -hmm. I like ravenously consumed new music and was always looking for the new thing. Uh, and I just wanted a way to share that mm-hmm. with my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started DJing, uh, just to do that and get the music out there. Um, I played at a couple of like the battle of the bands at my school, which didn't really make sense, but it was fun. Sure. Um, and eventually like, some of my friends asked me to share, you know, to share, share some of the music with them, send them playlists, like make them mixtapes or whatever. And so I started a blog, mm-hmm. uh, called Synthesis. Okay. Um, And, yeah, it just started really organically. I would just, the music that I would play in my sets, I'd upload it to the site and write some commentary on it, talk about why I liked it. And I was just really into talking to the artists and getting to know them and understanding the story behind the music. And I loved sharing that. And part of meeting a lot of these artists and kind of digging for the story um, led to a lot of the artists really heavily supporting me. Mm. Um or supporting by cool. supporting the platform, yeah, and one of the artists uh Nick grit, uh this guy Danny Beale, um I just loved his music,
1: so do you remember a moment when you decided that this was like your career path? Did it happen that way?
3: Mm.
2: yeah, I think the moment that I decided it was something that I wanted to pursue was I had I had enough money saved up that I could kind of take a little bit of time off after Mm -hmm. college. So I moved in uh, with one of my friends in Boulder and I kind of just like, I wanted to just take a little time to figure out what I wanted to do. And during that time I ran the blog Mm -hmm. because I was still, you know, kind of phased with me after college and it just kept getting more and more traffic and generating more revenue. And, you know, obviously it wasn't a, a tremendous amount of money. It was just a you know, a personal blog, Mm -hmm. um, but it was enough that I could pay some of my bills and I realized like, this is really fun. Yeah. This is really fun. It's something that I can get really excited about. And I, at that time I was still really considering going to law school, Mm. but I figured, you know, I'd rather take a year off before I commit to more education. Um, and so I committed to doing it for that year. And it just, in that time it took off to the point where I kept with it.
1: So, um, if you were talking to college students today, I don't know if it's if you do that. Sometimes, um, what would you tell them? What should they do that you did, mm. and what should they not do that you did? <laughs> I
2: I've, I I actually have a conversation in, that's somewhat related to this with with my roommates pretty often, uh, with a lot of people pretty often. That I wish that college. Happened three years later than it did in, in just like your life cycle yeah. because I feel like a Lot of the things that I got out of college if I had been a little bit older and a little bit more mature I would have kind of Gotten a lot more out of it. Yeah, so it's just that. like that you, you only have those four years to get that college experience and right. education Is such an amazing thing if you put in what you want to get out yeah. um, and I, I feel like I could have done that more And a couple years of, you know, additional time could have made that difference for me. But it's it's more just about the mentality. If I if I could give some advice, it would be this is a really valuable time in education, even just learning to love learning. Not necessarily any of the material that you learn or facts or memorization, but getting learning to be excited about learning new things is something that's so valuable throughout life. Because if you I, I feel like when you stop learning, you start dying. That's good, yeah, so if there is one thing that I guess I could impart is learn to love learning because it's something that will be valuable the rest of your life,
1: so okay, so you're doing the blog and then I know you know you get involved in e d m dot com um, was there like a break was there like a break where you guys broke through and and you know everything became easier um so
2: it wasn't edm.com initially right. it was dub it went from sub synthesis to dubstep.net yeah um, and then from dubstep.net to house music or house.net um, electro.net drum and bass.net, so a, a lot of different electronic genres.net yeah. so it was yeah. the .net network um, and eventually the edm network mm-hmm. um, and i I can't name like a specific point where it was like, okay, you know, we've made it. It's going to, it's, everything's going to be downhill from here up downhill in terms of being easier. I guess that wasn't really the, not the best way to explain it. But, um, I think the first time to me that it seemed like things were really happening was SoundCloud when you're on SoundCloud, you can see, um, your total stats. Mm -hmm. So like how many people have listened to your songs and how many different users have listened. And we broke 10 million. Uh, total listens on our on our SoundCloud account for dubstep.net yeah Um, and that just seemed so huge to me I mean and it is huge obviously in this kind of culture we see all these huge numbers on Spotify and YouTube and you know they're talking about oh the first track broke a billion streams and so people are a little bit I feel um, so inundated with big numbers that you kind of uh, are numb to some of it sometimes But for me, breaking 10 million was like a huge milestone. And I remember sharing a screenshot of that with all my friends and Mm -hmm. sending it to my parents. And that was a very meaningful moment to me. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. The problem with that, though, is if you're only featuring basically illegal music. Sure. Uh, You can't make any money off of that. It's cool and they're big numbers and, you know, you can put it on your fridge, get a magnet (laughs) or something, but it doesn't mean much. Yeah, yeah, Uh, I get it. Right, so...
1: No, I just want to, like, that perspective of, like, $10 Yeah. and kind of where that goes. Yeah, so... But, so, and when does, when does, when do other people start noticing what you guys had?
2: Yeah, so uh, that's actually an interesting question. So... I would probably break that into a very interesting turning point for us. And that was early on getting music to feature on the network was always a matter of reaching out to artists. So even though we were featuring a lot of bootlegs and, you know, music with uncleared samples and, you know, as I said before, illegal music, um, even though we were doing that, it was very important for the artist to say that they were okay with us featuring it. We wanted the artist to be excited and to support it. so at the beginning, it was always me reaching out to these artists. Always. I would go, I would spend all day looking for new songs and trying to find stuff that I thought was a fit for our platform. And then at the end of every day, I'd reach out to like 50 people. And then we'd get, you know, five responses. And those mm-hmm. would be the songs we'd feature the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point that switched. And so many people were reaching out to me that I didn't have much time to reach out to artists anymore. Um, and I guess I would say that's kind of the turning point where the the phone started ringing, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Um, at that point, it was just artists, and they were mostly small artists that saw what we were doing and wanted support for their music. Um, in terms of the phone ringing on a more kind of business level of people wanting to work with us, mm-hmm. I would say that really happened uh, when we purchased EDM.com. Mm-hmm. Maybe there was some before that, but that was a big turning point because it just... EDM was really the term EDM was becoming very big at the time. Yeah. I think uh we launched edm.com on January 1st 2013. Okay. Uh, and so that was kind of right at the peak. Yeah. Um peak or, or the, the the beginning of the peak. Yeah. Um it lasted a couple a couple years of being really that term being really strong. Sure. Um and that really became we referred to it as the calling card. As soon as that website was up from then on like the phones were ringing.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, it's an interesting bit of like real estate arbitrage, isn't it? Yeah. Cause very I mean, much so. You guys had you had like a cool thing going. You had the opportunity to get this this domain name, right? And and that was obviously a really smart move mm-hmm. to pick that up. Um
2: Yeah, it's actually an interesting story just a little a little aside. Um but we realized EDM was going to be the thing yeah. that the, the term became enough of a buzzword that it was clear that that was where the industry was going. Um, so my partner at the time um, looked up EDM.com, just ca- like kind of on a whim, like, mm-hmm. oh, I wonder if we can get sure. this. And it was listed as uh, available for purchase um, by by owner. So not like something you can just get on GoDaddy for $9.99, right. but someone right. someone was trying to sell it. You got to like make a deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah let's make a deal. <laughs> <laughs> so over, over a period of a couple of weeks, my partner got in contact with him and um, it turned out that the guy had purchased the domain in 1995, I believe. Wow. And at the time, the guy said there was kind of like a, a little bit of a superstition that you were only supposed to purchase one domain name. Oh, wow. And he had the choice between edm.com and golf.com. And he chose edm.com because he was an engineer by trade. And his specific area of expertise was what's called electronic
1: discharge machining. I'm not he, sure exactly what he, that is, but that was gone, his... He should uh, have gone with golf.com. I agree. So, um, you know, it's interesting now talking about this in 2018 because EDM is not... You know, as you said, it it has passed its peak mm-hmm. as a as a term and as a genre. And I know, you know, uh, musicians tend to kind of hate these buzzwords as soon as they become popular and they want to like retreat from all that right. Um,
2: they like them while it's contributing to their success, yeah, for sure. And then at some point, Everyone pushes back against it when right. it becomes too popular. Of course, yeah. <laughs> the genre tangent's a good tangent. That's like an ongoing conversation for it, sure.
1: It's a hard thing because there's value to it, and and at the same time, I understand artists don't want to be right. Pigeonholed. It's very
2: different from the artist perspective and the consumer perspective, sure. and that's where the I feel like that's where the uh, the tension of over the genre topic comes in because artists don't want to be pigeonholed, but fans want to be able to find what they're looking for.
1: Right. But, you know, I think that what, not wanting to be pigeonholed is a mistake. I agree. It's, it's counterproductive for what they're trying to do. And, you know, I've had this discussion that, um, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that artists make is they try to evolve at a pace that's faster than their fans are keeping up with. And, you know, I've, I understand because I've been on the artist side or I've seen what artists go through when, you know, by the time you put a single out, you've played that song a thousand times, Mm -hmm. right? Because you wrote it, you recorded it, you rehearsed it, you know, you promoted it, you've done all these things, and you're sick of that record. Right. There's no chance that you're not sick of that record.
2: Yeah, I think that's true for most artists. By the time you put something out, you already
1: hate it. And then God forbid it becomes a hit, then you got to play it another 10,000 <laughs> right. times, right? Or hear it and hear people talk. Maybe about for it. the
2: rest of your career. Maybe, <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: I mean, there's guys that are, you know, 40 years since they made that record and they're still playing it on, you know, New Year's Eve or whatever. It's um, like
2: when we saw Guns N' Roses at Coachella a couple of years ago. For and sure. Playing
1: the songs from, you know, 20, 30 years before. That's exactly right. Like, And so, of course, they're sick of it, but that's what gives them a career that you know, takes them into their, right, their later years. And, um, and so they always want to evolve because they're, they're so close to the material. And, and, you know, for them, that's old and they, you know, not guns and roses, right. But, but you, you have a song that's working for you. It's already old and you're trying to move on to the next thing. Your fans are just discovering that. Right. And they're not ready for the next thing.
2: The Again, I think it comes down to almost the same thing as genres. It's just the artist perspective is so much different yeah. than the fan consumer perspective. And you got to find a middle ground there because if as an artist, you're kind of just curating to your own taste or making music to your own taste, yeah. there's always going to be that disconnect with the fans. So I, I agree. That's a that's a very common problem is they get artists get so... Uh, bombarded by their own style and their own sound. That's all they hear. Sure. And so they feel like it must be old to everyone else too. Yeah. But it's like other people aren't there listening to the snare a thousand times while you're making the song. Absolutely.
1: Yo, if you're enjoying this one, go back in the Rebel Radio archives. Check out my interview with Dave Weiner. Uh, that's my homie that runs Strange Music out here on the West Coast. He runs the West Coast office for Strange, Tech Nines label. It's another team doing really innovative, incredible work, building new models for the music industry. Uh, Dave's got some great stories I think you'll enjoy as well. And of course, let's finish up here with Ethan Baer.
2: I think another uh, kind of theme, another thing that follows that same theme is the idea of selling out or being too mainstream, Mm. um, where a lot of artists, a lot of people in general really look at the idea of selling out as the worst thing ever. Like that's the, that's the, that's the end of your is career. That, is that
1: still, I mean, I know you talk to a lot more artists than I do. Is that still the case?
2: Still the case.
1: Yeah.
2: We work, uh, as a record label, we work with a lot of emerging talent. Mm-hmm. So a lot of very new early stage artists. Um, which is, you know, it's really exciting because you get to see them kind of evolve from the beginning of their career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, A very common theme is hatred of the idea of selling out or being mainstream. And Early what, artists really love so, the idea of being counterculture.
1: What does that mean in 2018? What does it mean to sell out? <laughs> um, I don't think it really
2: means much of anything, personally. Well, but, but
1: what do you think it means to these artists?
2: Uh, <laughs> it's interesting because... These artists want to be successful, right? Because yeah. they're pursuing music as a career. But to them, selling out when you try and kind of draw out of them what it means, uh-huh. it mostly comes down to being successful with your music. Um, yeah, really, a, their, their kind of a mental thing. yeah, their mental kind of uh, picture of it is selling out means making the music the fans want instead of the music you want which, you know, I do get that. And if you're totally compromising your own creative voice just to cater to what you think people want, yes, that's absolutely a mistake. If you're just making what people tell you to make, that's that could definitely be a mistake. Not yeah. necessarily, but I can see that not being creatively fulfilling. Yeah. Um, but I think the misconception here is that there isn't a middle ground. Right. Like it doesn't have to be you make what you want or you make what the fans want. It's right. how about you make what excites you that fans will like. Um, And it doesn't have to be this crazy extreme either way. Um, But I've I've found it's very common for artists to push back against the idea of selling out. But when you try and really get an explanation of it, it ultimately comes down to, oh, they're selling records. They're selling music. So they must've sold out.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really difficult um, road to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like I think, you know, there are definitely because you know our egos are in so much are so much in control of that whole discussion, mm-hmm. right? Like there's definitely artists that are so much up their own ass that they're making stuff they like and they're the only ones that like it. Yes, for sure. And the flip side is yeah, just chasing what fans want. Um, you know, you mentioned Lincoln Park. So, you know, Chester said to me the first time i met him he said if we made the records that the fans wanted we would just re-record hybrid theory over and over right because that's what they want that record sold 20 million yeah 20, i would i would hate million that copies right yeah <laughs> and and you know probably a big chunk of their ticket sales are people wanting right. to hear those songs right and so that's great when you i mean that's a blessing to find yourself in that position You know, the flip side is if you're trying to continue making music, you have to, you have to evolve. Right. It's Um, not
2: creatively fulfilling to re-record the same song over and over again.
1: Right. Exactly. And you're not adding anything to the, to enrich your fans. Right. Right. So there's also that kind of like, you know, people like to attribute it to Steve Jobs, right? That people don't know what they want until you give it to them. Right. And so it's 100% about finding the right balance and right and the right um you know i think the the artists that have succeeded over time are the ones that somehow innately have figured out how quickly to grow
3: mhm i
2: i've actually heard a really good quote about that i'm trying to remember who i heard it from some it was someone that that i've worked with on a, along the way yeah. and um i don't I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of having to find a middle ground between educating and accommodating. Yeah. um, and kind of the the simple explanation of that is, you know, by accommodating, you're creating music that is accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that people will want to listen to. You're keeping your fans in mind. You're making something that, you know, within the social, uh, scene that you're making music with or just the musical scene that's currently you know, prevalent at the time, you're making music that is somewhat accommodating to the fans that you want to reach. Yeah. But at the same time, you have to educate, meaning if you're just accommodating, that's not creatively fulfilling. So the educating part is exposing people to what you like, even if it might not be what they've heard before or what they think they like at the time. So there's a mix, you know, you have to pursue what you want to do, even if it's very different. But at the same time, you have to make sure that it's something that people will want to listen to. Um, and that's a, that is a tough balance.
1: It is. And, and, you know, it's funny, like, you know, you think about all these copyright cases that are happening now. And, and um, you know, if but if I played you something that's unlike anything you heard before, you would hate it.
2: Often. Yes.
1: You, yeah. You, I mean, that's our nature is yeah. we like what's familiar to us. So, we like what we're comfortable with. Yeah. So take me back. So, you know, you have this site that's doing really well. Uh, we were talking earlier at dinner about um, maybe the futility of, of uh, record labels for mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, so why create a label?
2: Um, I guess it kind of goes back to what I was talking about before where we got to a point where the company was generating 100 million streams listens to our, to the music that we are featuring every month. Yeah. Um, but we realized that that wasn't really a business. It okay. was like a really cool thing that was helping a lot of artists, but it made no money. Um, okay. which is clearly not a not a sustainable business model sure. there. So, Kind of the realization that we had is, the money in the in that business or in that space is in owning the content. Mm-hmm. Um, so the transition mm-hmm. happened very slowly. It wasn't an, an immediate thing where we just s- stopped featuring other people's music and started, you know, releasing music as a record label. Uh-huh but we made it our goal to start signing some of the music that we were featuring so that some of those 100 million plays a month were going to content that we owned so actually leveraging our media platform to promote our our own content yeah um so at the beginning it was a mix of using you know remixes and kind of very kind of mainstream content to bring a lot of traffic to the platform mixed in with songs that we owned right um and it slowly transitioned into only featuring music that our label owned, um, and this is where I, where I kind of I, I said the peak of our traffic was a mm-hmm. hundred uh, hundred million plays a month, when we switched to a record label. Um, we couldn't feature the sheer volume of content that we are featuring as just a promotion platform because yeah. you can you can find a hundred songs a week from random artists and and upload them to your channel, sure. but going through the signing and the contracting and the a and r process and you know distributing it to retail, going through all of that, you can't do nearly the volume that you can when there's no real business behind it right. um so yeah. the plays went down considerably to you know again, it was gradual because we slowly phased into doing Mm -hmm. only label content. Um, But I think it ended up plateauing around 30 million uh, views per month. Still a lot. Still a lot. It's definitely still a lot. Um, But all of those plays, all 30 million of those plays was on music that we owned. Right. and obviously the difference, 100 million plays is really impressive, but it generated zero dollars. Right. 30 million plays is you know, less than half, but it generates literally infinitely more money because zero is nothing. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that was, you know, it really was just a realization that this is really cool and we have something here and these platforms are strong, but how can we actually make money with them?
1: Yeah. So, you know, you, you call yourself a label, but uh, it's a different model. Mm-hmm. than a typical label, right So I don't know you know a, a Dimmac or a Fool's gold like I don't know how many releases they put out 20, yeah. 50 releases a year or something uh like that yeah,
2: I don't know exactly. I would say they put out probably like 10 to 15 a month. okay they so, do it's a good amount but so 100,
1: 150 a year. yeah,
2: probably something like that and and what and you right now. Uh, obviously, it took a while to ramp up, but right now we put out about a hundred records a month. Yeah, so it's a very, very different from the standard record label model.
1: Yeah, so so explain
2: the model. Sure. So when we I mentioned earlier, there was a turning point where I used to do all of the outreach to artists, yeah. and there was it sort of transitioned to suddenly the artists would always be reaching out to us, wanting us to feature their music on the platform, yeah. and we realized at one point that we really had something there. So we created what we call the submission portal. Um, and basically artists log in using their email and they have to fill out basic information, their name and their date of birth and where they're from and what types of music that they like, what they produce, do they play live, are they signed to a label? So kind mm-hmm. of basic information that you might want about these people. Um, and that, that's done two things. Uh, I mean, it's probably done a lot more than two things, but there's two things that were really intentional. One of them was we wanted to continue supporting as many up and coming artists as possible, and the other was the music business and the and the record business is very hit or miss and mm-hmm. oftentimes very unpredictable. You think you have the best hit in the world and no one gives a shit, right. and you think you have a piece of junk that you're putting out just because the artist really loves it, and you're like, you know, all right, whatever, we'll put this one out, and it gets. Millions of plays in the first month. Um, so by doing a bulk model and putting out a ton of content, it's kind of like rolling the dice a hundred times. If you mm-hmm. roll it enough times, you'll get big tracks. Sure. Um, so well, you know it's done a couple things. It's really we've been able to work with so many talented people. Yeah. And it's also a really good way of hedging your bets. Sure. So what are some of the
1: what are some of the big tracks or? or big artists that have started
2: people. Sure. Yeah, I mean there aren't any like big pop star artists mm-hmm. that we've worked with because you know, we do have that em- focus on emerging talent. Yeah. Um but we worked with this one artist Fam mm-hmm. who is from Poland. Um I think he was 18 at the time we signed the first track. Uh, it's a track called Movements.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That body's a blessing girl. I ain't trying to pressure her. She messed with the temperature, I wrote the song, but I am the messenger. Through the metropolis, there is no stopping this. was in kisses, yeah. I heard you like chocolate. Light up the candles. Tune up this channel. It's the ride of
2: your life, girl. It got featured on a big YouTube channel and got a lot of plays from that. I think that upload has like 40 million streams now. Um, our, the SoundCloud upload got like 23 million streams. The Spotify upload has Amazing. around 30 million streams, and it was just a rant. You know, I don't I don't like to say random in a in an insulting way, but it was just a random submission from a kid in Poland who yeah. now has a career. Wow. Um, so that was that's one uh, fam pham. Yeah. Um, another one is this artist named Scrux, okay, uh, and he did a track called You and Me, uh, which really took off on SoundCloud and ended up uh, driving a lot of traffic to spotify that track still does well every month um we did another track called deep end um by uh the the vocalist on it is a girl named lexi pantera mm-hmm. and she got famous doing twerk videos right. on youtube yeah. uh, and she has a, com- a company i think uh called twerk out Uh, And she gives like twerking. It's like an exercise aerobics kind of idea, but she gives twerk lessons to girls in LA um, and travels around the country and gives, does like twerk workshops. It's it's a dance. It's more of dance, like a dance class at this point. Twerk shops. Yeah. Twerk shops. Exactly. Um, So she was the vocalist on that. uh, And that track did really well. Um, Obviously she has a very big YouTube following, so she was able to support it. But that was one of our more, I would say, creative, marketing strategies mm-hmm. around that release. Um, because Lexi is a dancer, we decided to reach out to a bunch of other dancers yeah. uh, to create little dance routines to the song. Yeah. Um, and we ended up getting a bunch of really big uh, Instagram dancers, YouTube dancers, to make videos for the for the song, and they all did really well. Mm-hmm. So that created kind of a lot of organic uh, groundswell around that track.
1: Come back. So talk about... Uh, we were kind of talking about this at dinner, but, you know, you go from kind of this labor of love to now running a company, leading a team, you know, people that rely on you and, uh, you know, and very much like me, like I never set out to run a company and I had no training in that. Right. Or, and, but, you know, if you're sometimes when you're good at something you end up with a company that does it and you have to kind of figure that out as you go yeah um now let me think of the question okay (laughs) uh I don't know like how what well what's the what's the hardest part of that transition and what's the best part of it
2: um the hardest part that's that's a tough question there's a lot of hard parts, yeah, um I would say the hardest part for me was at the beginning, there wasn't really uh being a boss or being a leader, so to speak, because it was just me, right. you know, and then eventually it was just me and one partner, and we were equals, so there wasn't any you know you're leading or i'm leading right. um, and then as we brought on more people, my partner definitely had a um he was more interested in being a leader at mm-hmm. the time uh, and he was older as well and had a bit more experience so he really took on the leadership role and i thought of myself as the person that would just work harder than anyone else and i you know i wa- i wanted to just be as productive as humanly possible so i was very focused on the task at hand and how much i could get done in a day and just really immerse myself in the work and in the last year or so i've had to take on a, a leadership role mm-hmm. um, and It's funny because a lot of the employees that I've talked to about this have been like, well, we always felt like you were in a leadership role. Like you've played a huge part in inspiring us and like creating kind of the vision for the company. And I definitely never thought of myself in that way. That just sort of, I guess, bled off from my passion for what we were doing.
1: What do you you think they saw that you didn't in you?
2: Um... I think a lot of it came down to just my passion and my perseverance and my focus on the goal. Hmm. Like I had a vision and I really wanted to achieve it and I pursued it relentlessly. And I think uh, while I may not have been thinking about leading people to do the same, I was creating a model that they could follow and sort of leading through example without knowing that I was leading, if that makes sense. Um, so that I think was what they saw, um, in terms of the, the hard part, what was, what's hard for me is just kind of the transition from getting my gratification out of feeling like I'm producing the most work and being the producer and the doer to having to, to some degree, step back from that. And not not necessarily be so concerned about the one that's doing the most work and really be focused on motivating the team and creating the right culture and the right environment for them to work in and making sure that everyone is focused on the right things and that I'm removing obstacles from their path so that they can accomplish what they need to accomplish. And that shift was really difficult and is very difficult for me because a lot of my, I guess, self-esteem and self-worth for me came from knowing how much I was accomplishing. And I I know that I'm not necessarily like accomplishing is sort of a mixed word, you know, leadership is accomplishing something no, in it. just as much of totally a way. But my, you know, my self-worth to me was very much based on how much I got done. Yeah, um, And I prided myself on being very productive. Um, and it's just a very different, leadership is a very different type of productivity. So that, that yeah. transition, uh, Was and is very difficult for me. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it should be. I think it's, you know, I mean, everyone I know, I mean, you know, we're in an interesting business where if you're good at what you do, you end up not doing it anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's the reality. And it's not like I don't think it's like that in every industry. Um, but that's what happens, right? Yeah. As you build it, you end up with a company and then you're left with running a company and leaving right. a team and all if that you, stuff. If you're good
2: at what you do and you love it, then, and it becomes successful, then eventually you have to be the one that's helping other people continue that.
1: Yeah. Which is a completely different skill set. Absolutely. Then whatever it is you were doing. And it's, and there's, I think a lot of conflict In that process of transitioning one to the other Um, that's a
2: really good point
1: yeah i mean i wonder do you think do you think we're approaching a time when a computer can pick a hit record um
2: yeah i think computer could pick a could pick a hit record i've actually uh i've seen a lot of really interesting technology that's kind of working in that direction um i saw this one uh app or program that's in development. Uh, some people I know are working on this as kind of a, a business project that they were developing. And uh, they're both songwriters. Yeah. And the idea of the software is they put they ran hundreds of pop hits through this software and tried to map the the nuances of the melody and the wow. you know the chord structure and the vocals. And essentially it it creates a model that a hit record could fall into mm-hmm. right um, and you know there's there's producers like Max Martin and you know uh, Dr. Luke and these big hit uh, these right. producers that are known for making dozens or hundreds of hit records yeah. and there's a formula yeah. you know there's a formula for them to be able to do that and the formula doesn't mean you know it's exactly this and this and this but there's yeah. there's a very distinct pattern that if you follow it yeah. It's catchy. It's relatable. People can, you know, hum along to it or sing the hook or whatever. And just looking at their software and how it mapped out like the attenuation of a song. It's definitely doable.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I think, you know, there's a lot of. um, There's a lot of songs that are important over the years that wouldn't have got picked as hits.
2: I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, you hear that story from artists all the time where it's like that one song that they didn't want to release and they're like, ah, you know, they put it on the backburn for years yeah. and f- whatever, you know, their manager pressures them to release it or their label is like, yo, you still got song- one song in your contract. We got to put something out. Sure. And it, they, you know, they put out that one random song they had been sitting on because they didn't really think it was that special. And yeah. that's the biggest song of their career. Totally. You know, that makes their career.
1: Totally. So that Or, or it was on the B side. Right, exactly, exactly. Or, you know... There's an album with a bunch of huge singles. I'm not a Bob Dylan fan, but, like, who would have ever thought that that guy was going to make hit records?
2: Right. I still don't understand that, to be honest. No,
1: but, I I mean, as I was saying, like, the dude can't sing. Right. And, you know, whatever, but...
2: (laughs) I've gotten a lot of hate for saying that, but it's definitely true.
1: (laughs) Oh, I thought that was common. I thought so, too. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of artists like that that are not they don't fit the mold right of whatever is the perfect artist of the day um, you know certainly you know with electronic music in the early days no one would have thought that like these instrumental songs right yeah would mean anything right like so i think there's there's a lot of that that computers aren't going to get right um, the
2: evolution of genres yeah, is hard to sure. predict yeah
1: for sure I know we I know we were talking about it earlier and how you know the resistance to that you know for me and, and my generation and before like genre had all these other important meanings like um you know the the they kind of helped kids I would you know I think in high school they helped kids like organize their their lifestyle mm-hmm so the rockers dressed, in and a your certain friend way. groups, and yeah, your friends, your style of clothing, your slang that you use—like most of that was driven by music. Mm-hmm. I and think
2: it goes; it kind of goes both ways. In some ways, your personality and who you hung out with lo- determined what you listened to. And then on the flip yes. side, the type of music that you listen to often played a role in determining who you hung out with and how you dress. So I For think sure. it, it goes both ways.
1: Yeah, it does. No question.
2: Um, music was a large uh, factor in, in determining that. Yeah. Absolutely. And
1: certainly there's some jumping of genres. I did I did that, you know, a few times in my life and it took me a certain level of maturity to be able to accept all of the different styles of music that I like at the same time. Um, and now that's become, you know, open format has become more like acceptable as a way to be. But I guess what I'm saying is like, yeah, so, um, that became kind of an organizing force, right? That you could, uh, make a lot of other decisions in your life around your musical taste. That seems to have gone away
2: um yeah i think i think in some ways it has and in some ways it hasn't um i think because open format is so much more acceptable at this point that that's played a pretty big role in in making it so that there aren't as it's not as segmented or as fragmented um where most people are more accepting of a I, what I hear more often now is, I like everything but this. Right. As opposed to, I identify as a rocker. Or, I sure. identify as a metalhead. It's more, I like everything except country. Or, I like everything except electronic music or whatever.
1: So, if you're a young person today, how are you supposed to know how to dress? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, like you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how do you know if if you can't use your music genre... To tell you, kind of what person you are. How do you know who you are?
2: I think it still largely has to do with music. Does it? Um, I just think it's not as uh, it's not as fragmented as I said before, and I think it's. Okay. I think also um, there's less different groups, huh. um, and there's it's definitely more common for one kind of umbrella genre. To be relevant for a like a much bigger population of, of a certain age group, um, so you know I I definitely have a lot of friends younger younger siblings who they dress like all the other people at the music festivals they go to. So music festivals and concerts still play a huge role in determining sure. a lot of different cultural trends. Yeah. Um, I just think it's less fragmented.
1: Sounds confusing.
2: Yeah, it's. Uh, Sounds like a, sounds I don't know like, how I would figure out how to like dress, I dress if I was a kid now. <laughs>
1: if I were in high school.
2: Yeah. I think maybe now you have to hang out with and, and dress like the other people that listen to the same Spotify playlist.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> that sounds crazy. All right. Well, I got to do a lightning round. Okay. So tell me one decision that changed your life forever. Oh, Wow.
2: Um, I think just pursuing music in the first place, uh, really changed my life forever because I had all these different, like very specific, you know, extended education, career paths in mind that I really wanted to do. But I just, I decided to wing it for a year and that decision ended up, you know, now it's 2018 now, seven years later, I'm still doing that thing that I just decided, Hey, you know, I'm just going to give it a shot. Um, so that, that was a really a really big turning point for me. Um, And that was also where I kind of rejected what was expected of me and decided to just do what I was having fun doing.
1: Was that a difficult choice?
2: It was difficult at the time internally because I thought it would be something that my parents would reject. And, Mm. you know, I was always uh, success, particularly financial success, was always something that seemed very important to me. Um, because there's I had grown up in a family that was well relatively affluent Mm -hmm. and had had a lot of privileges and growing up around that and going to private schools and having all of my friends be you know well off it was almost expected and I had that expectation for myself and I thought that by rejecting you know being a doctor or being a lawyer kind of the things that were expected of me I thought that my parents in particular, I thought they would like not be interested in that um, and would be disappointed. But they were, you know, after I made the decision and I told them about it, they were incredibly supportive. Um, So it was hard. It was very hard to make that decision. But after I did it and committed myself to it, everyone was really stoked on it. So it it was it was more hard internally than it was for anyone else. But it was hard internally because of what I thought other people would think.
1: Yeah, that's a good lesson. Yeah. Definitely. Do it so, for you, not for other people. Totally. All right, complete this sentence for yourself. <laughs> I don't have talent. I have blank. Mm. Passion and vision. If I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? <laughs> um, what are you
2: working on right now? <laughs> okay
1: good uh who would you be excited to learn as a fan of your work
2: Mm. bernie sanders or, or, or elon musk
1: wow elon musk i think is into electronic music i think so yeah bernie probably not maybe not so much i'd love to go to a concert with bernie sanders though uh, I mean, I saw him at Coachella. Oh, really? On, on screen with uh, <laughs> Run the Jewels.
2: Oh, that's right.
1: Yeah, I that's totally forgot we about that. Yeah. What's your favorite city to travel to?
2: Um, probably LA right now, just because I have so many friends here and nice a lot of people that I that I really look up to, and it's just a great a great community. I would say. Yeah. It's not necessarily about the city. It's about the people.
1: Yeah. Plus, you know, the rest of the world is under snow right now. So yeah, that's true. We yeah, I we live have in New York now, movie. right
2: now, and uh, we got hit with that bomb cyclone. I think it's a bit of an extreme name, but it was pretty intense.
1: You should put a record out called Bomb Cyclone. <laughs>
2: right? Yeah.
1: It's
2: uh, a good name. It's like that song by uh, Dubs and I forgot who else they put out that song called Tsunami. Oh, and That right. was real big for like a year. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right.
2: Bomb cyclones cooler than tsunami. Though, I think. Bomb cyclones coming.
1: What's the last great book you read?
2: Um, I read a book called Principles uh, by Ray Dalio. Okay, and that was really good. And then uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Oh yeah, Is that's Zaki an li- amazing book. Yeah, it's really I good. Read it so many before. like little funny anecdotes that yeah. like I. Sometimes I'm a little bit skeptical about kind of, I don't want to call it a self-help book, but sort of those like yeah. kind of inspirational, motivational sure. type of books. But it mixed in so many like good, really funny, uh, culturally relevant anecdotes that it, it made it like a really easy read. And sometimes those right. that genre can be like, I don't want to say a drudge, but it can be work getting through some of it. That sure. one was very easy. I got through it in a couple of days and I ended up rereading it. So. It's
1: funny. I just read an article about that book or about about how like the zeitgeist today is, is very much about self-improvement, mm-hmm. right? That you have, you know, Tim Ferriss and, you know, everyone from Tim Ferriss to Deepak Chopra to, right. you know, every expert trying to tell you how to be better and happier and more mm-hmm. successful and whatever. And then there's this sort of subgenre and i mentioned that book and the life changing magic of not giving a fuck there's like a few of those yeah <laughs> like that are just kind of like rebelling against that notion yeah i and like so. and i like both yeah 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 totally totally i mean i think there's something to be said for um improving and also not taking it too seriously
2: yeah i absolutely agree i yeah. think it's Like everything, there's definitely a really, is an important balance to be found there. Yeah. Um, I think that whole genre of kind of like self-help and like online gurus and like to some degree, I think it's like people really wanting to improve themselves. And in other ways, I think it's like a pretty exploitative industry where, you know,
1: Well, yeah, I mean, preying
2: I'm, on people's insecurities and, and weaknesses absolutely, and kind of promising snake oil kind yeah, of thing.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny because in some ways that's kind of what this show is about. Right. Like, you know, I wanted people to learn from people that are building really interesting careers and creative, you know, creative careers and living creative lives. And you know, it's certainly not, I don't know if I would call it self-help. I think it's mostly meant to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. But, but I want people to take something away from it right. that they can use. At the same time, I've learned, you know, now having done 100, close to 150 episodes, that um, there is no formula. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, like, what, you know, what have you learned in doing all these shows? And the number one thing is that, like, what works for you works for you. And what worked for the last guest, maybe the you know in some cases the opposite. And there are some there are some overlaps for sure. There are some common threads from time to time, but um, but it's so in, it's so individual because you know you're a unique person and and you have to find the path that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, picking up. Uh, you know someone's someone's book like it never it's never going to be a perfect fit there might be some couple nuggets you can get from it right but yeah it can easily be exploitative if you're if you're sort of you know searching for the answer
2: yeah the more the more hyper specific that stuff is of this is how you have to do it and here's the exact steps that you have to follow the more specific and precise it is generally the more skeptical i am sure not in that it doesn't work but that it's kind of hard for a very specific formula to work for everyone yeah you know
1: yeah at the same time it's like some you know i've read plenty of books that like help you understand the problem but don't tell you what to do sure and yeah i guess like, the
2: topic is very important too because some things a specific formula would be the right way to do it yeah. um yeah
1: it's hard i mean as somebody who's like you know, I feel like I'm all I'm on a lifelong quest to figure it out for What's myself. It? Whatever it is. Whatever it is, I'm trying to figure it out yeah. for myself. You know what I mean? How's and, that going? Um, I'm not done. Uh how's it you know, it's frustrating. Yeah. Because you try a lot of shit that doesn't work and some things do and you you know, you're constantly reshuffling the deck. Um it's actually not frustrating. It's actually really engaging and yeah. interesting, but you know, my wife says it's exhausting and and I, I get where she's coming from.
2: Yeah. Um, that actually, that reminds me a little bit of something we were talking about earlier, where you were asking me about the transition from, you know, the, the person doing the day to day work yeah. to being a leader. Um, that was a, that was an instance of the it changing, right. you know, and reshuffling yes. the deck. And, uh, you asked me what were like the hard, some of the hard things and the easy things and we ended up getting a little bit off topic but another one of the hard things is I was very passionate that uh, about finding new music and discovering new artists and yeah. really being deeply involved with the artists that's how I went from being a DJ and running my own blog to starting this company right. and when I had to transition out of doing that into more of a leadership role I was no longer doing the thing that I was incredibly passionate about that had gotten me into working in music in the first place. Sure. Um, And that's, I think that's to some degree something that I still struggle with a lot is maintaining that passion and that excitement. Yeah. Um, And I feel like it's very important because it is a, it is a strong part of my leadership style that I'm trying to develop is leading by example and showing that passion and that passion being a large, motivational and inspiring force for my team. Um, so maintaining maintaining passion and ad- allowing your passion to adapt is something that's
1: really difficult. It's a tough one. I mean, I, you know, I think that um, there is only leadership by example. That's the only kind of leadership. Sure, yeah. And... Doing people's work for them is not leadership. No, right, and so those two things are kind of at odds, but they're both true.
2: Right, which is why it's hard because I want to do that work sometimes, yeah. but I know it's not my place. And sure. it, not only is it not my place, but it's counterproductive for me to get in to get in the way of my A&Rs or to get in the way of my label manager. That yeah. it's not it's not my job, and it will it makes them feel not good, you Absolutely. know, because I'm then I'm stepping on their toes, and it's That's like, well, right. am, am I doing something wrong or
1: right? absolutely okay what movie have you seen the most in your life <laughs> big daddy with adam sandler that was at
2: that time where i just Crazy. had had infinite free time you yeah. know and that movie i just thought it was so funny i probably saw it totally in the theaters i probably saw it five or six times and then i've seen it so many times since Do you think that.
1: hooters paid for that uh, product <laughs> i hope so i don't know it's weird right because they weren't—I don't know if they were necessarily painted in the most yeah. favorable light—but it was kind of a fun.
2: Yeah, it was fun, and it was like some pretty solid branding. Like it yeah. had good screen time.
1: Yeah. Curious about that. Yeah. We'll have to find out. Yeah. Who's your favorite DJ?
2: Um. Gosh, that changes all the time. Yeah. Um. Recently, I've been listening to Oliver. Okay. Really good. I, okay. like, like, I like funky. Yeah. Funky is a really good descriptive word for me. For sure. Um, me too. And I feel like that kind of transcends genres and transcends generations. Like funky is a good, really good descriptor for me.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I like Oliver now. Um, it's, you know, I should have mentioned at the beginning, you guys are a partner in this show and I appreciate all of the support. I think a lot of our listeners come because of you guys. And, uh, you know, come through our SoundCloud channel and, and through you. And, uh, and you give us new music to feature every week, which is really yeah, cool. Yeah, man.
2: I, I'm so appreciative that you guys use the music. And yeah. I, I've learned a lot from listening to this show. So it's, uh, nice. it's an honor. Yeah, Awesome.
1: Cool. Well, let's do more of it. Next time we're in L.A., we'll do some uh, co-hosting. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, killer.
2: Yeah, one topic I just want to throw out there is uh, the distinction between active listening and passive listening and how the transition from a physical format to a streaming format has changed that, uh, changed the active versus passive listening. Okay. Talk about it. So, you know, I think this is, uh, this specific example is, is used a lot. Um, but it's really like poignant for me is when you, when you buy a CD that's an experience, right? And you right. take it back, and you you get together with your friends, and you listen to that album over and over again, and you're act you're engaged with that album. Sure. And it's it consumes you for a while while you're you're listening to every song, and you're picking your favorite track, and you're learning the words, and the order of the songs matters, and you know you you don't like song number one or two, but you always skip to three, and so it's yeah. a very active process, and yeah. you're very deeply engaged. And now that you can pretty much access any song at any time and you don't have to actually have that physical thing in your hands. Right. Um, Music has shifted a lot towards curation. Mm -hmm. So rather than having an album you have like an artist or a blog or a YouTube channel or a Spotify playlist that in general has music that you like and so it became rather than really like meeting with your friends and listening to that new album I feel like music has in a lot of ways shifted to, oh yeah, put on that playlist while we're cooking or while we're eating or while we're partying or whatever. And it's less about really engaging with what you're listening to and having background music, Mm -hmm. music for working. You know, the playlists now are largely activity or mood based. So it's like, I'm happy. So I'm listening to the happy playlist or I'm working out. So I'm listening to the workout playlist and it becomes less about the songs and less about the artists. And more about just the mood or the activity that you're doing. It becomes background. It becomes very passive.
1: So what impact... What impact does that have on, on both sides? On the listener? And on the creator? Which one first? The listener.
2: Okay. Um, for the listener, I think that it... I think it, I mean, I think it accomplishes a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the most important ones is I think the connection between fans and artists is much more fickle. And by that, I don't mean that there aren't like really devout fans of specific artists, but Mm -hmm. I feel like it's much more flighty and it changes much quicker. Sure. Um, And when I was growing up, and I'm sure it's different for you as well, there were, as you mentioned, there are people that identify as rockers or metalheads or whatever. There were also people that very much identified as fish fans or Grateful... You know, there were Deadheads or there are Bob Dylan fans. And I feel like that is much less now. Where there are definitely Zed's Dead fans or Nicky Romero fans or Disclosure fans or whatever. But it's a much... That process, the turnover is much faster. And the culture... Uh, the music culture and the show going culture is more about going to shows than going to see a specific artist. It's just like, oh, what right. show can we Festivals go to this week? Or or, yeah, yeah, and the festival. It's like a lot. Yeah. A lot of times, it's not even about the lineup. Right. It's like, who cares what the lineup yeah, yeah, is? Yeah. I like Bonnaroo or I like yeah, sure. Coachella, and yeah. there's definitely something to that. I'm I not mean, saying that passive is worse than active. It's just very different, and it's right. put music into a very different role in society. Um,
1: So I like to argue that it diminishes your enjoyment of the music.
2: That's a tough one. I think personally, I agree with you. I like to really actively engage with music because I feel like if I'm just passively, if I just have music playing while I'm working out, I don't really get into any of that music. It's just like keeping me going. You know, it just sets the tone. Um, So I do agree with you. However, what I think it accomplished positively is that a lot of people that weren't music listeners previously. Mm-hmm. Like me, being a music listener used to be a specific type of person. A lot of people yeah. just didn't weren't really into music. Um, and or at least
1: more people, I feel like. And Well, they didn't buy music. Right. Right. They start, like, you know, I think people listen to the radio Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but they certainly didn't buy music.
2: Right. They weren't avid avid music fans. Yes. And I think that is much more common now because of how easily accessible things are and because actively engaging with music is a a very specific thing, you know, and you have to be really passionate about what you're listening to to want to actively engage in the way that I described with an album before. Whereas a lot of people work out a lot of people run, a lot of people hang out with their friends or a lot of people study and now there's study playlists. So even if you're not a huge music fan, maybe you're not the type of person that would have like actively looked out for new music. But now because there's a study playlist on your Spotify, you know, Mm -hmm. one of your friends does a study playlist. That person now listens to a lot of music. So I agree that I think on an individual level, it does diminish your enjoyment with the music. Um, but I also think it's exposed a lot more people to music that might not have been before. So
1: I think there's good and bad. So what does it do on the creator side? Um, so this
2: is like on the creator side as well as on the record label side and yeah. sort of the business behind it. But the focus really was on, on albums and bodies of work. Yeah. Um, and singles have always been very important. I don't mean to you know, argue against that at all. Um, especially with radio and the fo- focus on singles goes back well, a long time. Well, singles
1: are important in the, I mean, in the marketing process. From like the 70s to the 90s. Right. And before that, it was singles. Right. Mostly. Too.
2: Right. So I, before that, I wasn't listening to music. No, I understand. Yeah, I wasn't, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't sure.
1: alive. But
2: um, yeah, during that period, the 70s to 90s, as you said, the albums were very, albums were the format. So, artists had to focus on creating bodies of work where it's right. not just, oh, I want to do a tropical house song and then I want to do a dubstep song and then I want to do this. It's like they had to create a body of work that told a story and was meaningful as a body of work rather yeah. than a collection of random songs. Granted, there were people that would just release collections of random songs and there's sure. nothing necessarily wrong with that. But there was a focus on concept albums and, mm-hmm. you know, you had all the cover, the 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 art, the the booklet that went in the in the CD case or the, vinyl uh cover and you know there was it was such so much more of like a full piece of art Mm -hmm. um, on on so many different ways and so many different mediums and that's a very different thing for an artist to focus on as opposed to okay well right now dubstep is hot so i'm gonna make a dubstep track and then right now you know festival house is hot so i'm gonna make that like It allows artists to be much more flighty and change what they're doing a lot more often because they don't have to spend a year or two years. Like the the life cycle of an album could have been a long time. A lot of bands would put out an album and then tour for five years and then put out another album. Now, you know, when we even even from our side, like when we're talking to artists, we like artists that can deliver us a track a month because like that's a model for success consistency, just putting out content. You know, you don't want to put out junk. But if, if you're finishing tracks... But
1: if you're going to make a 12-song album, you should just put out one a one You should put...
2: Yeah. I can't tell you how... Maybe I should switch my quote from earlier to consistency. <laughs> yeah. Focus on consistency. Rather than making an album, let's release 12 singles. Yeah. Because if you put out an album, and then you wait a year, and then you put out something else, a lot of those fans will have disappeared. They've right. moved on. They care about different music now. Like trends are changing too quickly, and people's attention span is, sho- is so short yeah. that if you're not constantly re-engaging your fans, mm-hmm. they've moved on,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so you'll you can't come back and expect after a long period of time that those people will be waiting for you. Um, so there is just a focus on rapid rapid turnover.
1: So as a as a uh, As a metal fan and a dance music fan, what is a song that you love that we would be most surprised to learn?
2: (laughs) Um, I love Alicia Keys. Okay. That's probably... I love Alicia Keys. All right.
1: Uh, That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have guessed that.
2: Yeah. Uh I like Ariana Grande. Oh, I like Ariana Grande yeah. too. I don't Dangerous know what woman I have you know? no idea what her music sounds like. <laughs> oh, okay. But I love her. Yeah. Okay, me too. Yeah. <laughs> but I like her music too. Oh, okay. I've never heard her music. <laughs> but I love her anyway. Yeah. I think those are those are good. Okay. Nice. I, I honestly have a very uh very open taste in music. I like yeah. a lot of different stuff. And I think running a label and being involved deeply in the music industry is has helped shape that in a lot of ways. Like sure. Anytime you listen to one thing a lot, you want to try something else. And I've just heard so many different things. And I kind of, at one point I was, I identified as one of those people that I like metal and rock, but not country and R and B and whatever. And now it's like, a good song is a good song. And I really believe that. There are some things that I like less than others, but, yeah. I haven't found a genre that I haven't been able to find a good song in. I
1: believe you. Dude, this was so much fun, man. I appreciate you uh, telling the great stories.
2: Yeah, thank you. Fun this time. was great. Awesome. I'll let you know next time I'm uh, back in L.A., and we'll we'll do it again. Let's do it.
1: Yo, that was Ethan Baer on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you hit us with a review on iTunes, some comments on Twitter, Facebook, Watch the YouTube. We got videos coming up every week now. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.